Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. The center of innovation is here. And, you know, this is part of the message of Project Cashmere, of this whole podcast, that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I think probably those people who are really, they do extremely well with very limited resources and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity, and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, good night, Project Kazimierz listener, wherever wherever you are in the world. It's 2018, I'm in Warsaw, and today we have a, an unusual podcast because we've got two people in the room apart from myself. We've got Florian Faiz, who's going to correct my pronunciation, the founder and chief executive of a company called Slater, and my business partner, Kimon Fontakidis. Um, Kimon's not the main subject of the interview, but he may interject from time to time, I suspect, knowing him as I do. Um, so, Florian, we met for the first time about half an hour ago, although I've done a little research on your business, but could you kick off by just introducing who you are and what you do to someone who might have just asked you that question at a party? Sure, sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. Actually, it's the first time I'm in Poland and the first time I'm in uh in Warsaw, obviously, and um, um, so very good to be here. So Slater and, and myself, so I'm um, originally a trained translator. I had a, even a career before that. I'm, a, I'm actually a, a certified electrician in, in a prior life, uh, but then, uh, you know, felt that I'm not the best uh, electrician. You, you know the former president of Poland, Lech Wałęsa, was yes, he, electrician. Yes, he was also an electrician. <laughs> yes, right, so we right. have good pedigree. Um, good, but yeah. So, but I'm not the most talented electrician. So I switched careers to uh, to languages and um, uh, to study translation first in, in Switzerland and then in, um, in in London as well. I joined a company uh, and called uh, CLS Communication. The center of innovation is here, and you know this is part of the message of Project Kashmir of this whole podcast that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I think probably those people who are really they do extremely well with very limited resources, and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity, and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, good night, Project Kazimierz listener, wherever wherever you are in the world. It's 2018, I'm in Warsaw, and today we have a, an unusual podcast because we've got two people in the room apart from myself. We've got Florian Faiz, who's going to correct my pronunciation, the founder and chief executive of a company called Slater, and my business partner, Kimon Fontakidis. Um, 
Kimon's not the main subject of the interview, but he may interject from time to time, I suspect, knowing him as I do. Um, so, Florian, we met for the first time about half an hour ago, although I've done a little research on your business, but could you kick off by just introducing who you are and what you do to someone who might have just asked you that question at a party? Sure, sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me, Richard. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Actually, it's the first time I'm in Poland and the first time I'm in uh, in Warsaw, obviously. And um, uh, so, very good to be here. So, Slater and, and myself, so I'm um, originally a trained translator. I had a, even a career before that. I'm, a, I'm actually a, a certified electrician in, in a prior life. Uh, but then, uh, you know, felt that I'm not the best uh, electrician. You, you know the former president of Poland, Lech Wałęsa, was yes, an electrician. Yes, he was also an electrician. Yeah, good pedigree. Um, good pedigree, yeah. So, but I'm not the most talented electrician, so I switched careers to uh, to languages and um, uh, to study translation first in, in Switzerland and then in, um, in, in London as well. Uh, Joined a company uh, and called uh, CLS Communication, which is a, a so-called language service provider. You know, more commonly known as translation agency. Um, and that's actually quite a big business. It's it's you know 20, 30, 40 billion dollar market. So I uh, I joined that company and um, uh, when I uh, applied for the job, I had a, a dinner, uh, sorry, a lunch with the uh, uh, the manager I was supposed to report into. So I was asking, well, where am I going to work? Am I going to work in Zurich or in your Basel office? And he's like. No, we uh, were thinking about sending you to Singapore. So <laughs> my mind was racing. I'm like, well, where is uh, where is Singapore, right? I've never really been to Asia before. Um, long story short, uh, yes, I did eventually go to Singapore after a short training period in, in 2006. And then I, uh, you know, originally I was a translator there, but very quickly switched into operations. Uh, then, uh, you know, I moved to Hong Kong after three years in Singapore, took over the, the office in Hong Kong uh, for, for that company. And then uh, took on some regional responsibility for the business and uh, decided um, it was, you know, I wanted to experience the real China, as it were, in mainland China. So I moved to, to Shanghai. And uh, after three years, um, I, uh, we, we sold that business. You know, we can go into this uh, later in, in maybe a bit more detail. But that business was sold. It was actually the, the entire company was owned by a private equity firm. And uh, that business was sold. But prior to that, I, I was thinking around, you know, starting something on my own and I did not want to start yet another translation company because there's hundreds or even thousands of them. Uh, so I felt, well, what's missing in this space? And I felt that a proper uh, professional media um, uh, outlet, media website was missing. So I, I started Slater and Slater now, you know, is a. Um, a new a, a portal for this industry to get news and analysis Fair, fairly fast-paced daily updated uh, news on on a variety of topics and we, we can touch upon it later as well so right you know I've been uh, out there um, together with my business partner Andrew Smart who's uh, based in, in Bangkok he just moved he was actually based in Singapore for 25 years but now he moved to Bangkok and uh, and so we started Slater. So he's from the business media side, and I'm from the industry side. And now we've been doing it for two and a half years, and it's it's going well. Okay, great. So so what we've got is a bit about your your professional life. What about your 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 your, your Swiss? Are you? Um, is That's that right. is that where you're from? And That's like, right. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'm I'm Swiss. I'm uh, originally I grew up in Zurich, uh, very close to Zurich. You know, in Switzerland, uh, the borders are. 
very old school. So what in, in any other city would be called Zurich in, in Switzerland, it's already its own little community that, you know, has a history of 200 years and they would never join Zurich, right? Because they can levy their own taxes. So I grew up very near... <laughs> yes, very federal, very local uh, country. So I grew up in, in, in Zurich, um, and uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm Swiss. And, yeah. Okay, Swiss so, so we're going to come back to the translation industry, because this is actually an opportunity a lot of people who know me are puzzled about why translation can be such a big business, and we'll, we'll come back to the translation industry and why it's big and why it's growing in a moment. But um, you mentioned about starting the business, and a lot of our, our listeners are either entrepreneurs or they're interested in entrepreneurship. And when you took that decision to start Slater, was that a reflection of an earlier stage in your life that, for example, when you were a teenager or a kid, you knew that one day you wanted to have your own thing? Or was it like just something that gradually sort of came from somewhere? I think it gradually came. Uh, so my family is not really, has, doesn't have an entrepreneurial history. So that there was no, I don't think in, in his, at least the immediate family, there was no, no entrepreneur, nobody uh, yeah, having his own company. Uh, so, so it wasn't, wasn't driven by that. It was, I think, partially driven by my time in Asia because Asia is an extremely entrepreneurial place. Uh, Singapore, Hong Kong especially. Hong Kong is probably the most entrepreneurial place and in mainland China as well. Uh, so once you're there and you operate uh, a business there, and I was very much at arm's length uh, from headquarters, right? I mean, I, I was out there. I was very much self-reliant with my team. Uh, once you experience that, that hustle, that uh, that energy of a place like China, uh, it transfers pretty easily into starting your own business. Maybe not necessarily in China, that's another <laughs> additional challenge, but at least you can take that, that buzz from China and, and, and transfer it into, into the West, right? So I think really my, my time in Asia kind of um, made me do this. Okay, and, and, and what did your sort of family and friends, are your parents proud of you having your own business? Or they, do they think it's extremely risky, risky and they wish that you went back to the corporation? And do you feel like you're no. supported by your, your ecosystem, your family, friends are in, in favor? Or, yes, or, or were they a bit suspicious? No, they were. No, no. And some of my friends are, have been entrepreneurs forever. So mm. actually the, the person I'm, I'm, I'm sharing the office with, he's, he's never been employed uh, after his 19th, 19th birthday. So mm. So for him, being employed is probably the, the odd one. Uh, so no, no, I'm, yes, so my, you know, my family likes it. My wife is very happy with this. So. <laughs> as long as you're succeeding. I'm sure she will be with you for better or for worse. <laughs> right. so, um, but okay, but so moving on to the, um, the translation industry, um, you mentioned 20, 30, 40 billion dollar a year business. Um, can you explain why it's big and why it's growing? Why, what is it about translation industry which means that it's such an interesting area in which to make lots of money? So, first of all, translation uh, is needed for in any industry, almost any industry. Some industries need more translation than others, but you know anything from mining to lawyers to banking to life science. Okay, let me stop you because like sure. some of my listeners, I know already that in mining, why would a miner need translation? So Imagine you're Rio Tinto Zinc or, or a company like that. Sure. Why do you need translation? Just give a, a sense of... So I'll give you two examples. So first, any large corporation needs translation. So if, B, uh, if BN, uh, BHP Billiton wants to buy another uh, company, they need to translate a bunch of contracts and, and probably due diligence documents and things like that. Mm -hmm. right? That doesn't have 
particular connection to mining. That's just corporate documents. Mm -hmm. But if they want to set up a mine in Mongolia, uh, guess what? The Mongolian government says you got to translate all of that um, construction documentation into Mongolian because mm -hmm. our construction workers here don't read English, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a practical example from, from, from my time in, in the language industry where we, we did a, a lot of uh, such construction manuals for companies that went into Mongolia in 2011 and 2012 when there was a huge boom in, in Mongolia. They opened up the mines, right? Um, so that, yeah, that's one example, right? For even an industry, yeah, mining is probably not the major buyer of translation services. It's mm -hmm. probably, uh, but but still, even they need need it. Yeah. Okay, so 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 clearly, for someone who hasn't thought of that, that if you're going international, you're going into countries where they don't speak the same language. That's you right. do just getting your all your processes into the language of the country you're in. Are there are there any other areas which people might not have thought of that are important in translation? Um, they might not have thought of well the big big buyers of translation services would be uh, also IT companies right the big uh, you know Google is actually I mean Google has Google Translate but Google is one of the, the the world's biggest buyers of human translation services as well because Google needs to localize their products you know their uh, their apps their uh, their software products into into languages and Google Translate isn't there yet they wouldn't google translate their g suite for example into into spanish or german i, 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 I want to stop you there because i think this is such an interesting thing for people to reflect on that everyone imagines that a translation company is going to be killed by google and mm. google's one of the biggest buyers of translation not, that's right and then yes. the, as well as disrupting the industry they're also fueling it they're fueling it yes yeah. so they're a big buyer uh and 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 you know they are the leading machine translation portal, although there's a lot of competition right now, uh, but Google Translate, I'm, I'm sure, is still the, the predominant, uh, you know, machine translation, publicly accessible machine translation engine. Uh, but again, to, to globalize for Google, if they want to sell their products, their G Suite or, uh, you know, their, their um, I think G Suite is probably the overarching term, if they want to localize this into, into 30, 40, 50 languages, they, they need human translators. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and why is the market, and, and the market is growing, right? Why, why is it growing? Um, so there's, there's two things. First of all, I think it's uh, the translation industry is a good um, proxy for general global growth. So the economy has been doing pretty well over the last five, six, seven years. That fosters international trade, which then has, you know, just generally ups the activity and, and people want to grab market share. So they need to localize their products to, to enter new markets, which drives then translation services. Uh, but also, yeah, to, for example, deal activity in the, uh, the financial space, right? Companies getting bought and sold, that requires a lot of translation. Uh, and then there's new markets emerging. Uh, think about Netflix. You know, four years ago, no one did any translation for Netflix. Now Netflix is pumping out, you know, one original series a day. And all of this needs to be subtitled, translated, dubbed. So that's an entirely new market that wasn't there four years ago. And Netflix has this pool called, is it Hermes? This that's right. Yeah. This translation management, translator management pool. Which, by the way, shut down yesterday. They have enough translators, and you're going to read this tomorrow on Slater. Okay, <laughs> this is okay. one of the stories we're going to read tomorrow. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. it's nice to have an expert in the room. <laughs> you had, unfortunately, this is not a live broadcast. You didn't hear it. <laughs> you were, were this live, you would have heard this here first. However, sure. however you're not going to. We'll read it on Slater on, yeah. on Friday. Um, yes. Um, tomorrow. So maybe just explain what Hermes is to someone who doesn't know. 
Oh, I'm not particularly familiar with Hermes. I think it was their way of sourcing translators directly, which is somewhat unusual for a, a, a large buyer to go out and actually try to uh, to source translators directly for their for their needs. Um, maybe Netflix did it because it's so key to their mission of internationalization, right? I also know that um, a number of companies that are servicing Netflix are doing extremely well. Uh, you can check out a company called Zoo Digital. Um, you know, two, three years ago, they were struggling. Now their share price is up tenfold over the past 18 months uh, on the back of that content explosion. Another company called BTI Studios, uh, same happened to them. Um, and so, yeah, but to go back to your original point, this Netflix, you know, Amazon original content is, is one example of a emerging market that wasn't there four or five years ago. And now all of a sudden it, it keeps a lot of linguists busy. Mm-hmm. And and the the issue about quality is interesting because I, I I my my father who's now eighty eight years old told me that when he was a kid um, in the nineteen thirties German toys were regarded as a cheap rubbish and then my godfather told me that in the nineteen fifties Japanese toys were the cheap rubbish when I was a kid it was you know Taiwan Taiwan mm. and uh, you know Hong Kong toys were, toys were cheap rubbish and there's a sort of and then about. 20 years ago, I heard people in the UK saying that Polish toys were cheap rubbish. And I associate the cheap rubbish stage of economic development as being the stage when the translation is really bad, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. that's when the manuals are ridiculous. Yeah. And, uh, and if you read a Toyota manual now, it's written in better English than an English person can yeah. write it in. And do you think that there's a, a stage in economic development? Do you notice as you go around the world where people are not ready to spend money on translation and it gradually changes as they move up market and they develop? Well, that is a very good question, I, I, especially since I've done a lot of business in China. And in China, it really wasn't top of mind, at least until two, three, four years ago, uh, when Chinese companies started to go abroad and just couldn't sell crappy translation, uh, um, you know, couldn't sell their products, uh, manuals with crappy translation into a Western market. Uh, so, it, yes, I guess there would be a stage 15, 20,000 GDP per person a year. Maybe that's roughly the threshold where people start caring about translation, right? And, and it, it becomes a fairly sophisticated economy where you have some of these needs that in a, in a, in a less uh, advanced economy, you just don't have that, right? That's why Europe and the United States still are the major markets uh, for, for, for translation as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I might ask Kim a question here because, I mean, August <coughs> business, we have had one... One Polish client in Horzhov, I think. Uh, oh, yeah, you uh, came in. Did you get re-involved in that? No, you just uh, heard well, about we, it. We talked about it. Yeah. Uh, um, but um, maybe you could explain what, what, why, why Argos, and maybe introduce Argos to people who don't know what um, Argos multilingual, and why don't we sell in Poland? You know, we have a lot of people in Poland. We're in Poland. What, why, why, why don't we sell in Poland? Uh, and and, and, and uh, introduce Argos as well. Okay, um, thanks. Thanks, Richard, for having me join. Um, so yeah, Argos Multilingual, we're a mid-size uh, LSP. Um, we're based in Poland. LSP, that's jargon. Sorry, no jargon sorry language service provider, translation company. We're a mid-size uh, industry translation company. Um, and as you said, yes, yeah, so we're based in Poland. Uh, we probably have 140 people altogether, 100 of which are in Poland. Um, we started in Poland, we were founded in Poland. Um, but it's actually very interesting what you're saying is that having said that, today 80% of our business is in the U.S., and I'd say 19% is not in Poland. It's somewhere else in Europe and in other places. We nine, zero, do, nine zero. Nine zero. Yeah, 19. So I'd say we do less than 2%, one, less than 1% of our business 
is in Poland. And actually, that's a competitive disadvantage. Uh, like it really stinks to be able to be based here and to have salespeople here and not to be able to go out and sell locally. Um, unfortunately, I think it's a question of maturity. I, th I think at some point, as you were sort of mentioning the maturity of, uh, of, uh, of economies, that at some point Poland will be an attractive place to sell. But right now, I think the culture and the understanding of the importance and the value of translation. Plus, let's be honest, I mean, it's for, you know, who needs translation? I mean, it would have to be Polish companies that are exporting um, and doing significant business uh, in, let's say, the U.S. or in Europe. And I'm sure there are such, you know, there are a lot of big companies like that, but the, the number of them is not so big and, and their awareness of the value of translation is not so great. So, um, yeah, so it's kind of interesting that we being based here, we don't do almost any business here um, in Poland at all. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah, I mean, certainly, we actually have some interesting conversations with advisors who look at what we do and suggest that we ought to get into the Polish market. And <laughs> this is not something that we're particularly prioritizing right now. No. No. I mean, uh, look, it's 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 kind of simple. If you're running if you're running a business, um, you go where the biggest markets are, where the biggest opportunities are. And, um, you know, that's right now, that's not, that's, that's not, that's not Poland. Um, even, and the crazy, as I said, the crazy thing is, even though we're so well set up to do it here, um, it's still from our, you know, a cost benefit perspective, it really doesn't, um, make any sense. I'll go back to Florida in a moment, but maybe you can, can you, obviously people can probably hear you're American, although your name, Kimon Fontakidis might suggest otherwise, um, Europe versus America as markets. We we're very strong in America. We're not as we don't have as much business in Europe. Why is that? Yeah. Well, historically, okay. So we started here in Poland, and historically, uh, you know, being American, I was interested in selling into the U.S. market. Um, I think up to let's say a couple of years ago, probably half of our business was in the U.S. and half of our business was in Europe. Again, not in Poland, but let's say in in in, in what we what we used to call Western Europe. Um, I think the real game changer for us was uh, over. We've done two acquisitions in the meantime, and those were of American companies. So that really upped our um, sort of share. As I said, like 80, it's actually 82% of our business is in the US. Um, but that's also not an accident. We've actually specifically chosen the US because, uh, and this is not because I'm American, it's just the, it's just an easier place to sell in a lot of ways. Um, the companies are bigger, the contracts, the opportunities are bigger. The amount of effort that you have to spend to land business is pretty much the same in Europe, but the actual value of the account ends up being being bigger. And, you know, I don't want to sort of be offensive or non, <laughs> non-culturally sensitive or something like that. And again, maybe it's because I'm American, but I've lived here 25 years in Poland. Um, it's just, I find it easier to sort of open the door with American buyers. Uh, they're willing to listen to you. Um, whereas it's a little bit harder to get that door open and get the initial conversation going um, here in Europe. Of course, you can have the haters in the comment box at the end, but but I won't. But I won't be reading it. No, I'm only kidding. But you might need some translation if you want to sell into a European markets as well, right? Yeah, uh, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm can, can I ask a question to, to to Florian though? Because like, so I'm a. So as I said, we're a mid-sized translation company, and I think uh, you know, and we're so and I'm like the CEO of the company, and I, I'm always interested in market information and what's going on. And uh, for years, like there really wasn't much and Florian really did and Slater really did fit a niche. I mean, there was a need for this. I mean, and it's not an accident. He says that he has 8,000 subscribers. Um, and I know because I know I talk to other translation company owners. I know people in my own company. 
everybody in our industry reads Slater. And that is a huge success. And I'm sort of just curious, how did you like, how did you just identify this opportunity? Because it really is you. I'm I'm sort of like on the flip side. I'm like Mm -hmm. the consumer of what you do. And and I just think it's amazing that you actually sort of really nailed the head, uh, you know, hit the nail on the head with with regard to what we need in the industry. And maybe you could just a little bit. Sure. So, uh, you know, I guess it's it's the classic case of um, uh, when you start a company, you try to um, fill a need that you saw yourself. And, and so I was I was very busy. I was selling uh, out in Asia mostly. I mean, I did have some management function, but basically I was spending a lot of time with the clients, which meant I had to be very active in events, um, uh, you know, in, in, where my clients were, right? Banking events, life science events, legal events. So I didn't really have time to go to translation industry events that's number one and there weren't any events for example for that matter in asia at all or maybe one a year or very kind of niche or you know translation association events but not not nothing on the business side so i felt a little alone <laughs> i you know got most of my information about the industry from um you know meeting meeting maybe competitors but you know we weren't able to share uh, too too freely and openly uh, anyway so, so, but what I did do, of course, as I said, I went to all these other events and, and I also read a number of publications that were catering for verticals other than translation, banking publications, finance, Asia, right? Asia, legal business, um, these types of uh, publications, which updated me on what was going on in my clients' industries, but nothing really for, for my industry. Um, so I felt, well, but why isn't there anything like that? Where, why isn't there a service that kind of updates me on a day-to-day basis on business news, right? On, on who buys who, on, on M&A, on, on technology, and in a very somewhat digestible form, you know, not a 50-page research report because I just didn't have time to do that, but something that kind of gives me, uh, you know, something in a fairly digested form. So now I had no idea about media per se. So what I did was I did the, the traditional thing. I, I basically pinked the only person in media I really knew well, with, uh, which then ended up to be, be my business partner, Andrew. So I emailed him, hey, can we grab lunch, right? Um, you know, I have this idea. I want to do, you know, a company that covers this language industry, uh, you know, online in, in a fast-paced way. And so he was like, so you told me this was a, what, a $30, $40 billion industry? Really? And they, there is no, like, you know, professional business media property for this? That That is crazy, right? So, um, so we started fleshing out the model. He got very excited as well about it. Um, and, you know, maybe just as a quick aside, he, I was actually his client. We were translating in his magazine, Asia Legal Business, and we were sponsoring his uh, Asia Legal Business events. So we had a business relationship before that. But anyway, so then, then yeah, we, we, we looked at the model. We looked at, uh, you know, what technology you can use and, and, uh, and, and also maybe leverage some of our Asia um, expertise there by building up an editorial base in, in, in Manila. And then you know we we felt there was a there was a business case for it, right? And um, and that was you know we started we went online about two and a half years ago. So this is a quite a new company. You 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 fairly new, yeah. And your and your first customer because I always think for any business the first customer is quite a memorable moment. The first time someone buys anything from you, um, can you because um, because that, like that's when you move from being delusional to possibly right. Yeah, that's that's a good one. So the first customer, well, the first customer that that. That was was the company. I guess the very first customer that was interested in, in certain services was the company I used to work for. They just kind of wanted to 
continue to work with me a little bit, but maybe that doesn't really count. Um, I think the first, and I have to give a shout out there, was a, a, a somebody who um, he took the first, he bought the first banner ad in the newsletter for an entire year, and he was the guy who told me when I pitched this idea to him that it was never going to work. <laughs> <laughs> That's always. So, Are you listening now? <laughs> he was yeah. an early adopter. He, he was, was an, an early, early adopter. adopter. No, no, no. He he he, 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 he felt sorry it. for you. He was, he was, <laughs> no, he saw it very, he saw quickly that that it's likely going to work, right? Mm-hmm. And so he took out an ad, a banner ad for for an entire year on on the email newsletter, which was kind of an afterthought when we started. Actually, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, you have the website as your prime property, mm-hmm. but uh, you know the email newsletter you know again you said we have 8,000 subscribers now uh, you know has become fairly important as well um, okay and, and we didn't have, and you said you analyzed the business model can you um, can you describe the business in numbers that you're ready to share obviously this you know there may be some confidential things like how much you pay yourself for example or yeah. <laughs> uh, there may be things you don't want to share or how rich you are <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but, uh, but um, in terms of just not the numbers you can share can you just describe what products and services the business provides so and, look, and, number, and, and, and how you make money, the business yeah. model. So I, the numbers I like to share is two, two metrics, right? First of all, page views. We have about 100,000 page views now. It varies between 80 and 120,000 depending on you know the, the edginess of the story we publish and the relevance. Uh, and we have 8,000 newsletter subscribers uh, now that, that subscribe to a weekly newsletter that I'm sending out on, on a Friday. And that's free, right? That's free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's opt-in, but still people, you know, tell you send me more email, which I find unusual. Actually, let's reflect on that. Who wants to get more email? It must uh, be really good if people are saying send me yes, email. send me more email. And we have great opening rates. You know, we have opening rates between 30 and 40% and click rates between 10 and 20%. Uh, so that that is way above any uh, in media average. So you have to be very relevant for that. Um, so so those are some of the metrics. Um, the business model. Look, um, uh, we do have a number of um, income streams. Right, we have the the ads. Mm-hmm. Right, so we do sell banner ads in 2018, and they're selling very. I mean, we sold <laughs> we're basically sold out this year. Uh, so banner ads, despite ad blockers, uh, good good uh, metrics as well there. So above average metrics for for our ad clients. Uh, we do uh, we have banner ads on the newsletter that we're sending out. Uh, very effective actually to run particular campaigns for clients. Then we have that's so that's the ad side. Then we have sponsored content where we do all the heavy lifting of conceptualizing what it is you want to. Uh, put out there and we write a you know 1000 word feature and then it gets published uh, on, on our main website feed and it's clear that that's sponsored it's content. clear it's absolutely clear and we're you know we say this is sponsored content uh, and, and we got paid for it uh, we also have press releases which are kind of taking off right now we used to have like one or two a week but now we have like three a day or two a day especially the last few weeks have been pretty busy and, and those are all, I mean, they're all paid. So basically, it's a press release. You publish a press release on Slater, it's paid. costs $180 per post, or you can buy a package. Um, and uh, and that, that, that is also flagged as paid, but it even has a different font. So mm-hmm. people who land on that page, they realize, ah, okay, that's not a editorial Slater post. And that's presumably not totally compelling. It's a translation company saying we are awesome in some Yeah, different. I mean, it's a press release, right? I mean, it's it's a press release where they say that, hey, we released that widget or our CEO was named as XYZ, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, and so this is this is the stuff that we typically wouldn't feature in editorial, mm-hmm. right? Editorial, we're pretty strict on what we 
we have pretty strict guidelines, right? If you if we write about an M&A, we'd like to have some numbers. If we write about for your financial results, not just revenue growth, but please give us some profitability numbers. Uh, so we, we try to be very um, relevant on the editorial set. Okay, I'm, I'm digressing. Let's go back to the revenue. So we have ads, we have content, uh, we have conferences. Mm-hmm. So we started a, a conference series uh, called SlaterCon. I think that's how I heard about Slater Kimon said he's, he's talking to you about going to some of events that you're running. There you go. So, so we do SlaterCon. We did three last year. We did, uh, we did uh, London, New York, and Zurich. And uh, we did Tokyo a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago. So those are half-day conferences where we have uh, 20-minute presentations. Uh, so the point being, we're trying to get the executives in and, and really make it fast-paced. So for London, you can fly in and out the same day. You don't have to hang out at a conference for you know three to four days. I guess that was an opening because... Um, in stark difference to, I guess, the media online side, there is a lot of competition on the conferencing side in this but, industry. Yes, and uh, our, our regular listeners won't know about this, but there are things like Localization World and localization Gala, World, and there are lots of, and there are big events, everyone Big gathered. events, extremely well executed. So, so you know, it's hard to enter this three-day forum uh, conferencing market. So, um, and also it's, it's not something we, we, we like to do at this point. So we, uh, yeah, so we, we, we do the conferencing side, uh, and then the money in the conference of people are paying for tickets. Yes, it's not, it's, for it's not booths and no, trade. not booths. So it's it's tickets, and uh, we're now. Last year we didn't accept any sponsors just because it would have been logistically too too much work for us to even accept the sponsor. <laughs> right now, this year we are. So we have two sponsor slots each for each conference, mm. and I'm glad to report that we sold one for London already. <laughs> and, and if someone wants to go to your conference, about how much is it? Is it like a thousand euros, ten thousand euros, a hundred euros? I'm going no. <laughs> Uh, I think now we're in the range of uh, about five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm counting everything in dollars. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, I mean, uh, it's an easier one for me. So, so yeah, about five hundred to six hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would just just comment that uh, I haven't been to a SlaterCon, but I'm looking forward to going to one because, and it's exactly the format that you described. I think it's appealing. It's going to be appealing to people to be able to go in and out and just to, to do something in a short dose. And, and I think it sort of ties in sort of to your business model in general, that you're like giving clean, short doses of information and sort of it's keeping up with the world That's the way it is today, which is just small, high quality doses of information. And, and even the talks, I mean, you mentioned to me are like 15 or 20 minute, like Ted, right. Ted style talks. Ted style, I mean, yeah, we actually say that Ted, Ted style talks. Yeah. I mean that, so I don't know. I just think that that's also has the potential to be very attractive for a lot of, for a lot yeah. of people, because it's a huge commitment. I mean, I just came back from a conference. I loved it. It was great, but like, that's a serious time commitment. It's a week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a week. week. It ends so up being a week. Get, I mean, I, you know, yeah, you need to get something out of this for, for a week. So we do that. So we've got the conferences and, we did have a client that was uh, doing uh, executive roundtables with us, and we're hoping to pick this up again uh, this year. Uh, that's basically lead generation events where we would bring, like they would identify a, a vertical where they would like to expand their business. Uh, so they'd say, hey, we'd like to grow life sciences in Japan. And then what we do is we'd find a great speaker, a great topic, and then get 15 very, very highly qualified uh, and very senior people with the potential to buy those services in a room. So they, they can go there for free and, uh, and they, get, um, they get a speaker who is not connected to that company that's sponsoring it. Mm-hmm. But eventually, of course, that company would be then there and, and you know, gather the leads and, and get exposure to these people. So in-person in lead generation is what we call it. Mm-hmm. And, yes. um, and that, that's something that ties in very well with our 
uh, it doesn't, yeah, it ties in very well with our capabilities also because we are in Asia, we are in Europe, so we can execute those very quickly. Yeah, and if your goal is to have a lifestyle business, lead generation means you can end up in a hospitality box at seeing the World Cup final or on a yacht <laughs> in the Caribbean. Right. So, so but having said that, the, is if you're a shareholder of a business, it's always interesting to reflect on what, what's going on in the business if yeah. the, the customers are all on yachts in Cannes because, yeah, yeah. because there's something about that suggesting that other things than the margin, value, value for money the, is... The margins <laughs> and translations are a little tight for yachts and, uh, and boxes in Cannes, but uh, <laughs> you know, we can give them a nice treatment <laughs> yeah. yeah, you, you can still make it worth it. And, and there's, there's an interesting feature of the translation industry is how um, in a lot of industries you get a few big players who dominate the industry and translation is relatively fragmented, at least as far as I understand it. Could you give us sort of a sense of about the market structure, the size of the industry, that um, as I understand it, the, rather, the top companies in the industry have a rather small market share compared to many industries and, and uh, so A, could you comment on that and B, could you perhaps um, comment on your clients? Are they the market leaders, the big companies, or are they much more spread out? Good question. Uh, uh, Thank the, you. The latter, the latter <laughs> part, I like that. Yeah, so how, how's the client mix? Um, so first of all, there's various numbers about the size of this industry. So, you know, there's, there's uh, um, an established uh, um, consulting firm that's pegging it at about $45 billion a year. Um, there's also um, uh, 60 billion now now out in the room. And then there is, um, I, I would rather estimate it about 25 billion probably for, for the core addressable market. 25 billion, the leading player takes 600 million. And who's that? The That's TransPerfect, yes. a company called TransPerfect, uh, closely followed by the company that bought my previous company called uh, Limebridge. So Limebridge is number two in terms of revenues. Um, they have about 600 million as well, 590 million. Uh, then you go further down the list, you get to maybe 400 million, a company called SDL, uh, and then very quickly it goes into you know 250, 200, and then very quickly drops below the 100 million dollar mark. So, so you know that the largest player takes three, four, five percent of the market. Mm -hmm. Which uh, is really small, right? If, which you look is at, which if you look at mining, it's just not like that at that's all. Right, that's right. Come back right. to mining. Yes, <laughs> no, it's not like mining. Um, uh, so, um, so, so, yeah, it's, it's extremely um, fragmented. And then, you know, there are probably 10,000 actual translation companies out there. Uh, but then, you know, where do you draw the line? Basically, a freelancer who hires a couple of friends for a large project, is that already a translation company or is it just a freelancer? So there's a fuzzy border there where you cut, cut off at, um, at that. Um, who are our clients? Very broad based. Uh, so, you know, we do have some of the larger companies that are advertising with us, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so, um, and then, yes, we, we, we for, for the round tables, for example, that, that, that are, those are big ticket items uh, that a, a relatively small uh, company couldn't, couldn't afford, I guess. Uh, but then it's very broad based. I mean, we're we're also selling. By the way, I forgot that before. We're selling research as well. Uh, so deeper reports, you know, thirty, forty page reports. Uh, and so, you know, on, on on a monthly basis, we have fifty to sixty, seventy, eighty individual buyers buying things from us, right? Mm -hmm. And then it's it's all across from from the large companies. Uh, down to you know relatively small companies that are buying a report for forty eight dollars or placing a job ad or or publishing a press release. So, 
very, very diverse customer base already. Which is good in one way because it's more spread out. Very spread them, out, yeah. But it's also hard to grow very fast if, you, if, if you've got all these different markets to focus on, right? Well, these people come to us, right? So we we are selling actively. I mean, Andrew, my co-founder, he's uh, he's very yeah. What what is your sales selling. process? Is it on the phone or do you have like online marketing tools like Facebook and LinkedIn? So we or? we're terrible uh, at our social media presence, right? So far, it's basically me posting or, or someone else from the team posting a link on on, on LinkedIn or on and doing one tweet per story. So I think we can do a lot better there. The, the producer of this podcast, Adam, is quite a whiz on social social uh, the lead generation so I might put yeah. him in touch with you he's very That's good at it and, and I've, uh, other people I've introduced him to have uh, have uh, become his clients and have told have me you, that. Yeah, just into that have you do you use any sort of marketing automation like connected no. to HubSpot or something connected to your website is that something you've thought so, about or so you got to pick your battle so my, yeah. my my big battle is to be relevant first and 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 that's generated so much inbound interest that I really or I felt we could maybe neglect the active part of it, like SEO, for example. We have a pretty good ranking, but sure. we're not trying right. at all, right? But if you pump out original high-value content anyway, yeah. that's what the marketing consultants would tell you to do. Exactly. exactly. So, so we're not a blog that tries to be – I mean, that that is our core mission. So yeah. that then results in a lot of inbound, and we get a decent amount of traffic from Google directly. Now, yes, we could be much more engaging on social media and Twitter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know we do have now almost 8,000 followers on LinkedIn as well and you know 3,000 on, on Twitter 3,500 so so we're making some headway but mm. it's, it's something certainly that I need to, to look into so back to your question uh, a lot of it is just is, is inbound I mean we're for the higher ticket items you know we do need to reach out and, and there is a sales process but uh, a lot of it is just people that sometimes I've never met right? sounds like an awesome business to me yeah obviously that might, might lead to other people um, entering the market now do you bring clients to your events because in a typical industry event you've got like the people who sell stuff sure. and the people who buy stuff yes. and, the, and, then, and also I want to ask about private equity because usually if a company's the typical model for consol- consolidating an industry is like the listed companies issue shares and they buy private companies at lower valuations than the shares are listed and it's a wonder it can go on for decades mm. if you do it right because you every time you buy a company your share price goes up if you can do that and um, interestingly in in this industry some of the bigger listed companies certainly i think of lionbridge were taken private they're taken off the market yes and, and so private equity has a different role so in fact I've, I've bundled two questions which is um will you have clients like the big buyers of translation you know the big medical device manufacturers or the hewlett-packards showing up to your events because they know that's where the vendors are and um, do you get the financial guys in there and some comments about the financial structuring of the industry? So, yeah, so the, um, we do get buyers for the events. Um, the, 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 the more, the biggest con- constituency right now is leadership of providers, right? The CEO, C-level people of language service providers or owners. Uh, we do have a number of buyers there. And especially on from the audience side, uh, you know, I can know from the newsletter about 15, 17% of our newsletter subscribers are buyers. Now, if you look at the numbers, 8,000 people, that means 1,500 people, 2,000 people are buyers. So that's, if you look at it as such, it's a huge list of buying power that is reading, uh, that is reading our content. Again, on, on the on the conference side, 
something we're, we're trying to actively promote and get more buyers in the room, uh, but we do want to have a nice mix. We did have... And we yeah, could have, I just put them on the panel, by the way, if they're on the yeah, stage? No, no, we, we get them as speakers. So yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. about to, I guess tomorrow, I can you know, confirm a great name for our, um, our, our London conference. I always want to make sure I have a buyer there. I mean, that's, yeah, that's yeah. important. Otherwise, it's just a vendor fest and they start to become uh, too, too geeky. Right? So you, you need to have a buyer there just mm-hmm. to keep uh, discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, investors, yes, yes, we have investors. We have analysts that are coming to some of the events that are also part of the subscription base uh, as well. We have uh, in, in London, um, we had a private equity person from an investment bank from William Blair. In New York, we had a private equity company that had an investment thesis approved for the language industry and was basically looking to buy a company they were presenting. Uh, and we're going to repeat that uh, again for, for 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 London as well. So yes, financial um, people are there. Private equity uh, is is extremely prominent in this sector. And, and can you explain that? Because I, I think this is, um, you know, I, I'm the sort of person who likes to feel they understand what's going on. And deep down, I'm really curious about what it is about the translation industry that's attracted private equity mm-hmm. and and it's very visible it's not just one deal there are repeating so half, re- half of the top re- 20 are, um, are owned by private equity. And, and perhaps because like your, your business model is a little similar to TechCrunch and the, the sort of startup people you know the, there's a lot of free early TechCrunch no, yeah, I mean okay so you're not quite as visible as TechCrunch <laughs> yet but like in terms no, of providing lots of valuable content for yeah. free yeah. and doing highly profitable events where everyone has to be there that's a sort of I mean and I think they do I don't know what else TechCrunch do, but but this this private equity side of it is um, there's a question: Why is private equity all over the translation industry? What's the attraction for them? So, if you take it broader, let, let's just take a step back. I think private equity is is into anything right now because you can't make any money anymore because interest rates are just extremely low. I mean, or not you can't make any money, but interest rates are so low, so. There's so much money out there in the market, and private equity generally has grown very, um, you know, a lot over the past five years. Why are they interested in, in translation language services? Because of the fragmentation. So, so, so these roll-up strategies that they're doing are relatively easy to execute. Can you explain a roll-up again? For so, what you do is you buy a company. Um, and then you do bolt-on acquisitions, right? You buy a platform company that's your core, and then you buy another one, another one, another one. You attach that to to the core. Uh, you integrate, or more likely, you're not really integrating them, and then you hope to eventually flip it to a, a bigger buyer and 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 you know make a, a good return. So having so many companies um, with uh, with management that is. Um, has been with these companies for a long time is an opportunity, right? So they also, in, in addition to money, they also bring in a lot of management expertise and, and, and just a certain professionalism that that some of these companies would lack, right? Uh, to grow it to the next level when you want to become a $100 million, $200 million company. And is, is there any truth in the stereotype of the typical language service provider translation business is run by a translator who, who grew and therefore they don't necessarily have the business chops to, to take it into being a global enterprise? Because uh, that's, that's a bit negative, and if anyone listening to this in the industry is offended, it's my fault. I said that, not sure, Florian. Sure, you said that. No, 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 not Florian, not I was, about to, not I was about to correct you. I think if, 
I think maybe that's true for like a one million, two million dollar. But anybody who can gen- create a business with one or two million dollars in revenue, to me, is already it's great, right? You, you, they've already succeeded. So. Well, you, you you build a business, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and and you make money with your own with your own business, and, mm. and that's something to admire. So so I'm not the one who would teach him uh, lessons. So if you're if you're able to transition from the extremely desk bound and somewhat lonely and slightly nerdy profession of a translator to becoming a why were you looking at me when you said because this is not video but <laughs> to, to become a, a business a, a person who's running a business and a cutthroat business at that i mean translation is extremely competitive right then yeah i mean that's something to admire so i i, I don't think that's that's necessarily a problem plus you know the process Process, which may be an obstacle for you in certain ways, but then again, you know, clients do appreciate that you're actually really familiar with the subject matter, right? Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's also quite, it's not that easy to exit a small business like a one or two million dollar a year business, Let's say a translate. What is a translation, the guy who in your eyes or woman in your eyes mm-hmm. who succeeded, he's got, and yeah, I completely agree with you, he's got a two million dollar a year business and he's making good profit. He's succeeding, right? He's, he's succeeding. Doing and some of these companies make a lot of money. I mean, even a two million dollar business can make half a million dollar mm-hmm. profit, right? So, so yeah, that listen to that number, yeah. startup people. You, <laughs> let's, see, let's see how the machine translation thing goes, but I have come across very small companies that made a lot of profit yes uh, and in the old school business tradition that I, I i grew up in making a significant profit is a very big achievement yeah uh, that's that's old and new tradition <laughs> old and new tradition so so but it's not that easy to sell a business like that because it, i don't know no i think a business of that size that's hard but in any business of that size is probably harder to sell right because it really depends on you and if you exit the business what's left right? exactly so, exactly yeah. which means comes back to the old the old truism if you have a business work on the business not in the business because yeah. if you work in the business you won't be able to sell it at all easily <laughs> um so just a couple of other things because we're jump, jumping around i'm interested in the 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 future of the industry as a whole because there are big technological trends and um, if you could reflect on that and also the future of Slater what will what will Slater be doing in two five ten years time where where what would be a happy end can I can I can I help you I just before I want to sort of help frame that question because I think that's two questions the Slater one is uh, a second one I think the uh, the future is an interesting one especially for the listeners who aren't um, from the translation industry where uh, I think framing it a little bit that there's some new technology that's come into our industry that's potentially going to be disruptive. And I know that Florian has some interesting opinions about that. And I think that that uh, maybe talk a little bit about the technological change, but really also how should companies and sort of also from a general perspective, how do you adapt? I mean, how should they be adapting to uh, to deal with a potentially disruptive um, technology? Yeah, yeah. So very briefly, and not to get too nerdy, but what what really has changed over the past two years in this industry is uh, that neural networks have been deployed to do machine translation. So previously, they used statistical models, um, and 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 now for the past two to three years, they they've started using neural networks uh, that run on GPUs, you know, graphical process. Uh, uh, chips that they're typically used for gaming, so they can do a lot of calculations per second. Uh, that that has really been a, a fundamental change in the way you approach machine translation, and the result has been a quality leap in in machine translation. It became much more fluent. 
like three years ago, if you used Google Translate to translate Japanese into English, it would have been gibberish. Like you would not really have understood anything. Probably Polish as well was was very poor. Now with those neural networks doing uh, doing the models, uh, it, it, it's become surprisingly fluent. In fact, I mean, my native language is German, and and some of these uh, these these engines for English into German are. are borderline flawless for, for relatively short paragraphs or, or short sentences. Which doesn't uh, mean for any listener that you can rely on that for your marketing communication that's right, or yeah, your, yeah. your legal yeah. contract. Well, right? you can, but it's a risky proposition, right? Um, so, so that is really going to change uh, the production part of this industry because it's going to get a lot faster. So while up until now or maybe even now a translator would do three four five hundred words of translation an hour maybe up to six seven hundred if they're really fast with these technologies properly integrated with a beautiful user interface you can expect translators to go up to a thousand or fifteen hundred words an hour right which then changes the economics of the space right how much and just to give a sense i mean that's what five times let's say three yeah like almost five times three to five times times as fast right yeah now it doesn't mean that the machine does all of it, right? Maybe the machine's going to replace certain parts of translation that up until now ha- has been done by humans, but you know, you're really going to get a lot faster. What does that mean? Are you taking that in, in profit uh, be- because your clients aren't smart enough yet and they still pay you the old rate, or are you proactively giving uh, a lower rate to your client? Well, someone's going to give a lower rate, which will then pressure the unit prices. So right now in the industry, there's a discussion going on about should we go back to hourly rates? And it's a very complex part. If you have a large industry like that and you you have, you have change the economics of a fundamental part of this industry, it's bound to you know really change, right? Although isn't there an argument that the market's growing far? And this is about a productivity-enhancing technology. That's what we're talking sure. about yeah. um, on the human side. So it's making humans work, work faster. It's like giving a, a farmer a tractor instead of That's a... Right. Yeah. Uh, a hoe or whatever, but isn't the demand growing even faster than that? So the demand, so that that's a very interesting discussion because you have two parts in this industry. In in one part, demand is in a sense um, is fixed, right? A, 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 I guess a, a contract for an M and A deal, they're not going to translate it because they really want to. They just have to. It's a pain, right? Mm-hmm. So that part is likely going to grow a little less, but. Mm-hmm. For other parts where um, translation is an option and you do it to gain market share, to enter new new markets or to you know advertise your products, for example, better, that one is is likely going to absorb that demand and, and buy more. Right? Mm-hmm. So I, for example, at a conference, I asked the head of translation of Nestle, so if unit prices drop, are you going to buy less? And he's like, no, I'm going to buy the same, maybe even more, right? I get more bang for the buck, mm-hmm. right? So... So in a sense, the market can absorb that uh, uh, as well. Yeah. Yes. And so, yeah. No, I was just going to say, because the, the underlying driver of growth is globalization. If, you, if you're a Korean or Vietnamese or Polish company with a great product and you dominate your home market and you go into foreign markets, each additional market you enter, you're going to have language needs. And so the globalization and and the better you are at your business, if you're a top company and you're really good at it, you're much more likely to want good language associated with your product than if you're a shitty thing being sold as private label. There's a lot of unmet demand. Look, if I could publish Slater flawlessly translated in 40 languages for 200 bucks a month, I'd do it. But right now I can't. And Mm. it's it's a big risk for me to even translate into one language because I would have to edit this point mm-hmm. uh, or look at I'm using a number of SaaS tools like like Asana or Insightly right uh, for, 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 for some productivity things that I'm doing 
they have two or three languages, probably not because they consciously decided not to translate more, but because it is a process, there's a cost attached to it. If it was significantly cheaper, they'd probably go for Polish or mm. Norwegian or Swedish. Right? Mm -hmm. So as this industry becomes more efficient, it's becoming a more appealing proposition to, to buyers to buy more. Right. So the growth is like, it's to just get grind on going bigger and bigger and bigger for the time being. Yeah, maybe grind, grind on isn't the right word. Yeah, uh, no, but there's also parts that are going to take a hit because, again, there's not, uh, you know, a lawyer isn't going to translate the contract just because they want it. They probably have to translate right, it. Right. So that, that part's going to get take a bit of a hit, maybe. Uh, but yeah, so. Um, so that technology part uh, is something that this industry is in the midst of it right now. And a lot of the players from the technology side are integrating it into the tools that the translators are using. Uh, and, and that hasn't played out at all. I think right now we're in, in, right in the middle of what, you know, has, this overused term disruption, but like it is, we're in the midst of it. No yes, and, and that's always an, if you're on your if you've got your wits about you, that's an opportunity. If you're not keeping your eye on the ball, that's a big threat. It's a big threat. I think if you don't do anything right now, in two or three years from now, some clients, even even the most conservative clients, are going to come to you and say, "Really, you're still charging me twenty cents a word? That that other guy offers the same thing for five, right?" Yes. So, uh, so you be you better be correct. Yes. And are there any other big technological technological challenges you'd like to draw attention before we move on to the future of your business? For this particular, well, I mean, you got uh, voice. You know, there's other areas of this of this broader language space that are um, that are being worked on. And I, what I find very interesting is that the big tech companies have, you know, the Amazons, the Google, uh, the uh, you know, Salesforce, all, all of these companies, Microsoft. They, I think they have identified machine translation as somewhat of a proxy for progress in artificial intelligence per se. So. Five, six years ago, it really was Google Translate and not much else, maybe Microsoft. But right now, you have all of these bigger players doing their own uh, machine translation. I think that's an interesting trend. You, like even Amazon launched Amazon Translate three months ago. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so so it's, it's, it's something that has come out of complete obscurity to only relative obscurity right mm -hmm. now. And mm -hmm. obviously, these guys have almost unlimited funds. So if they really want to go after this, they, they will change the economic. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, th thank you for that sort of insight into what's going on in the industry. What about in your, your own personal business journey? We've talked about where you came from. Sure. We've got a sense of where you are now. Where, where are you, what would make you happy in three, five, seven years' time if things go perfectly? Let's, let's, dream, go let's, perfectly. let's dream. Let's dream. Uh, We're in Warsaw. <laughs> <laughs> the land of dreams. No, but Warsaw is, a, for those who don't know, Warsaw 25 years ago was not a very attractive city. It looks like a boom town now. There yeah, are yeah. buildings, shiny buildings everywhere. Maybe not like Zurich. <laughs> oh, we don't have shiny buildings. We don't do shiny buildings. I had enough shiny buildings in China, trust me. Um, that, that's shiny building central if you live in Shanghai. <laughs> so, uh, um, yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I like the lifestyle of this as well. I mean, I like to be, to, to, uh, be relatively independent, relatively free of you know, 10 p.m. conference calls. That's one perk that, that your your own business gives you probably up to a certain point when you do have large clients, maybe you have to take that 10 p.m. conference call. Um, and so I, I really like this business because it's um, it's intellectually challenging, but it also has a sales component. So, you know, and I can I can blend the travel. So from a lifestyle perspective, I'm pretty happy with, with how things are and I want to continue that way. You know, I want to do a very prudent build out of this 
um, this business. I think there's there's lots of opportunities going deeper into research, doing bigger conferences, potentially expanding into verticals adjacent to what we're doing right now. You know, there's there's this whole AI space that can be explored that's somewhat adjacent to what we're doing. Uh, you know, very steadily uh, build and grow grow this business. And uh, I, I don't have a a five or seven year vision I guess um, uh, yeah that's fine uh, listen to that carefully yeah. listeners sometimes it's just like focusing on the immediate opportunity yeah look and I'm, 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 at the end of the day I'm a Protestant from Zurich so <laughs> I, I cannot for the life of me repeat the world changing Silicon Valley I want to change the world vision thing I just that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't the BS filter sets it. I can't. I can't. I can't yeah. get that out of my. System. Yeah, I mean, you know, happy clients, making money, happy stuff. You know, that's no one. No, if you're doing that, no one really can criticize you, right? That's right. And you know, we have a great team. I, I got to say, we have a great team. We have three people uh, in, in the Philippines. You know, we have an events director based in Singapore. We have an analyst and a writer in Singapore. Uh, we're about to hire a researcher in London, and then Andrew, my business partner, is 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 working out of Bangkok. So that that is fantastic. I love I love that. Right, small company, but there's a very international mm. team already, and uh, and maybe for those who are contemplating starting a company, I can tell you it's incredibly easy these days to set a company up online. I mean, I'm probably subscribing to about 20, 25 software as a service uh, services right now. And it's fantastic, right? For productivity, for customer management, for email. You know, if you don't have any problem with Google, you know, you throw everything on. G right. Suite. I was. This is an interesting. This is an interesting topic. So Richard. easy. Do you right? use G? Do you use G Suite? Do you use do all those? Exactly. That's what I would do. G Suite. It's, it's. You know, we have Insightly. We have Asana. We have Mailchimp. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, WordPress obviously is our CMS, and you know, basically up to a point, you can just build a WordPress site with ten plugins, fifty plugins. Once you start to have twenty-five plugins, it starts to break apart a little bit. But, but long story short, ten years ago, building something like we did now would have required significant investment up front. Right now, it's actually the barriers to entry are extremely low because you can just kind of pick and choose these components. Um, so I encourage anybody out. I mean, and it's really not a significant spend. I mean, any of these subscriptions are twenty, thirty, forty dollars. In fact, I think the most expensive subscription right now I have is for Shutterstock, which uh, is for the images that we need to keep the website, you know, visually engaging. Um, but much else is just—it's extremely competitive. Right? Mm -hmm. So you get a full-blown CRM for twenty bucks a month. And that's the and you're using Word, WordPress or Mailchimp for the so for for the for the CMS for the the website we're using uh, WordPress for the email it's it's Mailchimp I, I don't think there's any anyone who comes close to Mailchimp I guess and then for the CRM I warmly recommend Insightly mm -hmm. I love it and then for productivity I love Asana I think this is one of the Facebook co-founders uh, it's good I like it my team <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> I think I'm using it for my own uh, purposes so far. Um, and then, yeah, there's, there's tons. Well, no, you're using the G Suite. I mean, because a lot the of people Suite, don't yeah. like even realize how good that is. No, the G Suite is amazing. Yeah. I mean, like, and it's free. I mean, or you, maybe you have the corporate, maybe you have the corporate, the fifty dollars yeah, thing. It's like six bucks a month. Yeah. yeah. So it's 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 great, and you know, when you come from a relatively old school organization, and you have 
you're sending files and then all of a sudden that like, you're only sending links it's just it's it's a transformative experience i guess but yeah no, i mean i'm so envious running a bigger organization with all of these big sort of you know microsoft lock-in exchange server legacy, licenses all this stuff, stuff. Mm-hmm. i would i mean just if i was ever to set up a business i totally see that i just yeah. think that that's such a cool that's such a cool thing and mm. it's very cool it's, it's, however yeah. you have to find someone who's got a problem or companies have got a problem you can solve right because you spotted a pet missing in your industry you wanted you were a customer for what you became the vendor of effectively sure. and you know if you don't see a problem you can solve don't start subscribing to all these services no don't you don't subscribe first and then get the clients no, no, later no, no. find the first thing find the find the customer and then then you can build the business back from the okay i, I we're basically I, i'm coming to the end of this but is there anything that i haven't asked or anything interesting that you you feel that um you know maybe the geographical spread of the business or like there are things that you haven't mentioned that you'd like to you think that listeners ought to know about either your business or the market about my business or the market uh no look i i went fairly deep down the rabbit hole for anybody who's not in this industry so i apologize for that <laughs> no that's that's uh, the I idea. Think the point, I mean, we, we like rabbit holes uh, here on project <laughs> Cash. i think that uh, again i think i want to end it on a positive note that it's really easy these days to um to set up a company in most geographies i guess also in poland i i i doubt it takes more than a week or two to set up a company right I mean, Switzerland isn't particularly bureaucratic, uh, but, you know, so it's very easy um, and the tools are out there. You can very quickly build uh, a global team if that's what you, you'd like. Um, you know, we, we do it with seven or eight people um, and, and there's there's so much going on, right? So, I mean, yeah, you do need to have a problem to fix. Um, Otherwise, uh, yeah, you're, you're not going to make money eventually, which is something a business has to do. But, you know, encourage uh, encourage people. I think it's, it's gotten a lot easier. Uh, okay. And if anyone listening to this, Florian, wants to get in touch with you or to do business with you, preferably pay for your services, what should they do? They should go on Slater.com, like translator, uh, Slater.com. And, uh, you know, my email is Florian at Slater. Dot com. So uh, send me an email. Okay, and we, we, I don't think you've sent me the links to put in the show notes yet. I sent you a form which you possibly haven't filled in. Oh, uh, I should uh, do that. Um, right. but, I'll, but, do it, but, I'll do it early next week. I, okay, but we'll we'll obviously publish a few additional links. Um, so thank you very much, Kimon. Do you want to add anything? No, I mean it's been a pleasure uh, hanging out with Florian here. I, I'm I'm impressed with his business, and I think I'm actually I'm excited to see your story because you know you've come so far so fast. And as I said, for us in the translation industry, it's been refreshing. And I just, yeah, it should be interesting to watch where you're going. It's looking good. Thanks. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Thanks for the support. Okay. Well, thanks very much for being on the show. Goodbye, Project Kashmir's listener. Thank you for listening to another episode of Project Kashmir's, brought to you by me, your host, Richard Lucas. If you enjoyed listening, check out additional podcasts on our webpage, projectkashmir's.com, or on iTunes, where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode and also leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. We welcome feedback and suggestions of new interviewees, whether as comments on projectcashmere.com or via our page on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Adam Zuber. Thank you again for listening.
You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward. Interaction between the university and the business high-tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but about new individuals, it's about, you know, um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other, sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other, but the reality is that you want to have as many as possible, because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here, and in this connected world, we don't need everyone here, but, but the, you know, the artists and the designers, the creatives, they're very much part of what, we, what we've got and what we need. So if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you're looking for a place where your, your, your creative juices will run, then, then, then this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself. And I think you can make history in Poland. I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now. Not just from a, you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community, and and making it wealthy, not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger.